Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On April 4th, detainees at the downtown St. Louis jail, named the St. Louis Justice Center, broke through the fourth floor window and yelled out to the street below in protest. This is on the heels of another upheaval that occurred in February in the same facility, which continues to be a hotbed of resistance, despite intensifying retaliation. In both cases, those in the jail managed to take control of their cell block, throw objects out of broken plexiglass windows, start fires, and communicate with the people gathered in support outside. In between those two actions, there have been multiple smaller clashes at the jail. On Sunday, the incarcerated on the fourth floor jimmied open the cell doors and pod doors. After overwhelming the guards, they entered the outer hallway that runs along the pods and the street-facing windows. In February, rebels also took advantage of the faulty locks to break out into the greater prison. The city is slated to spend $13.5 million to replace the locks and doors. From 9 to 11 p.m., the protesters took control of their unit, stopping only after being flooded with tear gas. Those gathered in solidarity put on uniforms inmates had taken off and thrown onto the ground. The city's public safety director, Jimmy Edwards, claimed the prisoners made no demands and were creating a, quote, mayhem just for the sake of it. On Sunday night, many were heard yelling for the right to court dates. Inmates have had their trials suspended due to the pandemic, keeping people behind bars for months longer than expected. One inmate has been in the facility for five years without going to trial. They were also heard demanding attention to be given to COVID in their facility. In a letter explaining the timeline of events and demands in the St. Louis facility, inmate Cortez Easterwood said on December 29th, he and 50 others staged a peaceful protest where they stood outside their cells in solidarity. This came months after they had filed their grievances with COs without response. Easterwood said, quote, Nothing was done to address those issues, and this morning's uprising was a natural evolution of the actions of living and feeling human beings. We are trying to tell the jail staff and management that we don't want to die. We are hungry. We want proper ventilation. We are tired of being cold without being given winter clothing. We want proper PPE for COVID. We are tired of being price gouged in the commissary and vending machines. We want the mandated six recs per day, and we want visits from family and friends. COs at the prison have been moving known infected COVID patients into pods with healthy inmates. In December, this type of action resulted in 24 infected inmates growing to almost 50 in 48 hours. In his letter, Easterwood asks, quote, How is it that the St. Louis CJC staff are allowed to be our judge, jury, and now executioner during this deadly pandemic? We feel like POWs in a foreign land in a hostile territory. 
Because of our blackness or our ancestral ties to Africa and Latin America, we are being treated as less than human. We are dying at CJC in unheard numbers and being intentionally infected at alarming rates. In my homeland, that is the civilized country of America, this is genocide. For our main story this week, we share the second part of a conversation with Balagoon, an Indiana political prisoner who's been locked up for almost 43 years, 31 of those in isolation. In this episode, he first describes the context of the 1985 uprising in the Indiana Reformatory, now called Pendleton Correctional. He describes the lockup units as our schools of thought and consciousness prior to the uprising. He tells of guards beating his dear comrade with an illegal baton so hard that it cracked. The guards then dragged his comrade in front of the other inmates, telling them that, quote, they were next. In this interview, Balagoon says that it's the same thing that happened to George Floyd, but the difference was that there were no bystanders able to take video. He talks about how the violence his friend experienced was not unique at all, that it was common practice for the guards to handcuff and shackle a prisoner, beat him or throw him down a flight of stairs, and then transfer the prisoner to another facility, before the inmate's parents or other family found out about the injuries. He also discusses the presence of neo-Nazi groups, like the Sons of Light, and says the well-known Gomez case, a prisoner civil rights class action that challenged the conditions of confinement at the Pelican Bay State Prison in California, was very similar to what they experienced here in Indiana. He also says that even though their case against the prison was strong, the prison couldn't afford to let them out, as it would set an example to other prisoners. So, as he says, they were used as an example. That as a prisoner, even when you're right, you're still wrong. Well, about September, or maybe October of 84, I'd been down about three months prior to the February 1st uprising. And I was in population feeling good, which was a new thing for me. I mean, I used to always, you know, be in trouble. But I was I was in population, you know, looking forward to doing my little three, three years or three and a half years spent there and, you know, going on to the house. But over the years, me and a lot of the brothers that was on Rocker, we had forged this, you know, this, this, this brotherhood. And yeah, you know, some of us was caught up in not, but for the most part, you know, we were committed to really, you know, doing good stuff, you know, you know, pushing consciousness, trying to educate brothers and stuff. And the lockup units were really, you know, our, our schools of thought, you dig, our, our universities and et cetera. So while I was in population on February 1st, Early that morning, there had been a a situation where the Raj had gotten into it with the police. They had threw some stuff out on the range, and as a result of them throwing stuff out in the range, they had locked the unit down. And, you know, they went from cell to cell, extracting each individual from the cell. And this is on MRU, you know. Now, now this extraction took place on MRU, which is which is a, a single cell lockup unit you did, where, that holds approximately 20 people. And it's a, it's a different from the, the DS or the AS unit that was, that was on top of that. And one of my dearest comrades, a brother named Lincoln Love, AKA Lopemore, him and the police had had an exchange 
And it was a nasty exchange, and they ended up running in the cell on him, seducing, after they seducing, handcuffed him, put shackles on him. They beat him down there to a pulse, you know, with a, a illegally issued, you know, oak baton. They beat him so severely with it that they cracked it. While they beat him, they're killing all the other rats on the unit that they're next. That if they get through killing him, that they're going to kill them next. So once they got through beating him, they drug him out of his cell and then drug him down the range in front of everybody's cell so they could see him, right? You know, basically terrorize. And they did that, then they took him all out of the unit and put him in the captain's office. While this was going on, I was on the walks, me and some other rats, uh, uh, on our way back in the unit, you know, doing something that we weren't supposed to do. And while we was doing this, you know, somebody started hollering our name. Another rat that was working in the captain's office as a porter, he came and ran up to us and told us what was going on. So we immediately stopped what we were doing and turned around and went back to, you know, to investigate the situation. Once we investigated the situation, we seen about 30 or 40 COs in the captain's office. They wouldn't let nobody go in the unit. They had a curtain pulled so you couldn't see in and you couldn't see out. But meanwhile, you know, brothers was hollering out the windows telling us that they were being murdered. This situation is similar to, you know, the George Floyd situation that, that happened last year. Only difference is, you know, it wasn't on video. And so we went and regrouped. You know, we went back to Jay Shell House. We armed ourselves. We came back and we demanded to see this person that that was dear to us that that that, that had been beaten. And in the process of trying to see him, the police tried to bully us. And next thing you know, melee break out. You know, we get maced. They get stabbed. We go to the infirmary because we had been told by other COs that he was being held in the infirmary. Once we get to the infirmary, you know, by the grace of God, we didn't get killed because unbeknown to us, in the infirmary where, where Lokemore had been taken, when we went back to the cell house to get armed, I guess they had took him out of the captain's office to the infirmary. And when he was in the infirmary, the warden and some other COs was over in the infirmary seeing about him because they knew who he was and you know i guess they anticipated it was going to be consequences once we found out what had happened to him right. but you know in, in, in the infirmary while they got him in the x-ray room taking x-rays of him the warden and two guards in there and they got shotguns mm. so when we came up in the infirmary looking for him we pulled on that door where they at but it wouldn't open but there's nothing really to keep that door from opening because it is open. It's not locked. It's just by the grace of God that this door, for some reason, wouldn't open. Had we opened that door, we'd have probably got, you know, blown away. But the door never opened. Anyway, we did get the week go up in there, you know, trying to, you know, get him and see about him. We were overwhelmed by, you know, others, other COs that came through the back entrance and the front entrance. And, you know, once they surrounded us, we had to basically fight our way out of that. 
So we end up, you dig, fighting our way out of that. You dig, in the process, you know, we staffed some guards and you dig, broke up out of there and went towards Jay Shearhouse. House. And once we got to Jay Shearhouse, House, you know, we got through the guard hall and then we took hostages in the guard hall. Then once we took hostages in the guard hall, we forced the guards to open the door and we entered Jay Shearhouse House and we held hostage in there, and demanded, you know what I'm saying, that once we got Jay Shellhouse, we demanded that the other prisoners participate, right? They came out of their shell, Aiden and sisters, called the media. They called the media and everything and told them what was going on. Once the media got involved, it was kind of like a 17 to 16 hour standoff and negotiation phase. That's, that's how that went down. Around about one to two o'clock the next morning is when everything was resolved. You know, we released the hostages and, you know, provided that, you know, we had been assured that there would be no physical reprisals taken against us. You know, and we also demanded that, you know, they improve some of the conditions there too. You know, right. they agreed to those terms and after that, every, you know, everybody was released and, we were subsequently taken to MRU, placed uh, in a cell overnight. Then, you know, we was taken to the state farm and put on a lockup unit down there where we was here, where we was here for three years pending our trial. Now, check this out. Everything that we said in terms of how this brother was beaten, he wasn't, he wasn't the only brother person that was beaten. What they did to him... They had been doing it to a lot of others. You know, they just got away with it because once they would sit up here and, and, and get you in handcuffs and shackle, they would throw you down a flight of stairs and knock a hole in your head. And, right. you know, by the time your parents heard about it, your family members heard about it, they would transfer you to the Indiana State Prison. So before your parents could make arrangements to come down the state of the tournament and see about you, you had, you had ISP. And, mm-hmm. you know, by the time you make arrangements to go to ISP to physically see your son or your or your brother or your father or your uncle, et cetera, you know what I'm saying? You didn't, you didn't have enough time to really recuperate. But this is, this is what was going on routinely. When we was at Tillman, in, in 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 1984 and early 85, it was like being in Mississippi. You know, that's the mentality that the COs had down there. And the COs that participated in the beating of Lincoln Love and the terrorization of other black prisoners, they belonged to this 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 neo-Nazi group calling themselves the Sons of Light. You know, that they, you know, we, you know, the FBI came down there and investigated all this stuff in the aftermath of that. And a lot of those, all this stuff came out, you know, in these interviews. Matter of fact, one of the COs that was stabbed by us, he ended up suing the DOC. You have one minute remaining. So we weren't just really dealing with no, you know, just no, uh, COs that, you know, decided to take matters into their own hand. You know, these was these were secret organizations, you know, that exist among the CEOs that were designed to terrorize us with impunity.
sons of life. You know, a lot of people, you know, it's been so long since I bought that up. But we got documentation of it, you know, legal documentation of their existence and the role that they played in these beatings that were taking place at the reformatory. Oh, reformatory, man, I'm talking about, woo! Yeah, I mean, when, when we when we was hearing about what they was doing down there in uh, Pelican Bay, right, uh, in that Gomez case, you know, it was reminiscent of what we was having to deal with. Had we been allowed to introduce all this stuff as evidence in our defense, we've got acquitted, and they knew that. This is why, you know, when we was put on trial, you know, the, the judge made sure that this evidence, you know, wasn't, wasn't introduced. They had what they call an offer of proof. And so we couldn't get this stuff in. Then we had a lot of doctors that worked at the facility, dentists, we did COs, that it came along, that it stepped forward to give testimony, to collaborate, everything we were saying, everything we was alleging, you know, about the beatings, you know, about the way in which we were singled out and targeted, you know, and they wouldn't let that evidence be introduced. Now, I, now, now that I'm older and I had a chance to reflect on, you know what I'm saying, the reason why, their the, the whole attitude was about, irregardless of what the circumstances was, they couldn't allow us to beat the case, right? But they feared that, you know, it would be setting the wrong example to other prisoners, you know, in other facilities throughout the state, that if an event that they were being subjected to abuse and they decided to take matters into their own hand, that they can use us, you know what I'm saying, to, you know, to justify that, right? So they wanted to demonstrate to everybody in the state that even when you right, you still wrong, you know? And that's basically what they did, man. That's basically yeah. what they did, you know? They sort of held the line on that position even up to now. I think in 2019, one of your co-defendants got a retrial and was resentenced to 129 yeah. years, I think. Well, he did. He he played the game. He joined all these little programs, jumped through the hoop of behavior modification, got the little certificates. He did in all these little programs, the PLUS program, the ACT program, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When he went back in that courtroom, they told him, they said, we don't give a damn about none of that. What we have an obligation for is to look out for the victims of your crime. That's what they told him. He had got married, and his, and his wife just fell out in the stands, right? Because she allowed herself to, you know, to, to, to become conditioned to believe that he was going to be released. She said the Lord had told her that. And so, you know, the revelation of the fact that he wasn't getting out and that they weren't going to necessarily really, you know, modify his sentence, you know, where he would be getting out any time soon was devastating to her. And she lost her religion at that particular time. They said she called and just so many motherfuckers in her But she lost her religion that day. Had that uprising not happened, had it not happened, I'd have probably went home and scheduled. November of 1988, but there's a real good probability that me and you wouldn't be having this conversation that we're having today because I probably wouldn't even been on this 
this plane, you know, this spiritual plane, and this this in existence at all. You know, I had to go through what I went through to be able to appreciate what I now appreciate. Not to say that, you know, I mean, you know, the, you know, the stuff that I went through it was essential to my development. Had I got out, you did what I'm saying, as backwards as I was. Yeah, man. You know, you you you, you probably never got a chance to, you know, to have this type of conversation with me, you know, because I was going right back into that same community around them same type of individuals, you know what I'm saying, that were really reactionaries and end up, you know, turning either into dope things or alcoholics or et cetera. And so I wouldn't have really been able, you know what I'm saying, to, you know, contribute the way in which I'm contributing now. You know, and, and that's, that's a damn shame that, you know, we got to go through stuff like this here in order, you know what I'm saying, to uh, uh, develop in this constructive people. But, uh, you know, that says a lot about, you know what I'm saying, this society where our environments are so backwards, you think that it produced backwards and ignorant people. And, you know, until they come to prison and, 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 and given the opportunity, you did want to send to isolate themselves and really do some, you know, some studying and some real, real serious soul searching before they figure out, you know what I'm saying, the ends of their way. You know, that says something about our society. You know, when you run into cats like me, Cal Funny, and all of us, et cetera, Shaka Shakur, had, you know, we said we not went through what we went through. Ain't no way we would have developed, you know, or become political side, you know, and, and been able, you know, to, you know, give an analysis to this or that. You know, same thing that George now went through back in the day when they was at Solidarity Prison. This is one of the reasons why they want to, you know what I'm saying, to censor our books and, you know, our magazines and, you know, the literature we get today because they know, you know what I'm saying, that, you know, ideals. And books is a dangerous thing in this type of environment for people, you know what I'm saying, that's really trying to figure out who they are and, and you dig what I'm saying, where they fit at in this life or in this world. I met this brother, you know, one of my mentors was a brother named T. Shocker, you know, and he's still around, you know, he's out of Wisconsin, you know, and at that, at that time when he met me, you know, I was on that third thing, you did that gangster thing. And, you know, he was always reaching for me, you know, giving me ideas of better people to emulate and want to be like. And eventually, you know what I'm saying, he sold me on some constructive, you know, brothers that were part of, you know what I'm saying, the new African movement, right? I read about you know, the, 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 the BLA and, you know, Asada and, so on and so on, and I, I read up on the brother Quasi Balagoon and etc. And so once I started politicizing myself, he did. I seen how this brother had had, had been captured for drinks robbery, end up you did what I'm saying, dying of AIDS. You did what I'm saying in in the in the midst of you did what I'm saying his guilt. And after I read about you did some of the things that he did and what his name stood for, I took my name, you know what I'm saying, in commemoration of that brother, right? And, you know, this was back in 86. And ever since then, you know, everybody else, you know what I'm saying, that recognized me as, you know, Ballard Grown. 
My mother's name is Annalie Cole. She was born in a little town outside of Muncie, Indiana, called Dunkard, Indiana. And my father, you know, was John Cole Senior. He was born in Louisiana, uh, Bernard, Louisiana, and then he moved to Arkansas. From Arkansas, you know, he came to Indianapolis in the 50s and he met my mother. And when I was a little boy, to me, he epitomized man beyond all other men. You know, that was my guy. You know, and one of the greatest compliments you can give me was to tell me I looked like my daddy. You know, I was just like him. We was close, you know. But my mama was the one that really raised me. She was the disciplinarian, you know. She's the one that I lived with most of my life. And, you know, she, she raised me, you know, what I'm saying, the best way she could, you know. And they tried to steal in me, you know, the same values that were stealed in them. But I had come up in an era where things were a little more radical than they were when my parents, you know, were coming up. You know, I come up you know, doing the civil rights and the black power movement and et cetera. So we didn't know nothing about, you know, Jim Crow or, you know, segregation, et cetera. We felt like we were just as good as anybody else. And uh, we took advantage of, you know, that opportunity. And I was hung around cats that were four to five years, you know, my senior. And because I was the youngest and the littlest, I had to be the boldest. That's what allowed me, you know, to be with them. My daring and my boldest ways. And as a result of being like that and hanging around all these cats that were tough guys, I ended up, you know, doing a lot of antisocial stuff as a juvenile. And once I got, you know, caught up in the system, I was caught, you know, it's hard to get out. And it became a habit, you know, stealing and robbing and, you know, playing hooky and, you know, stuff like that, you know, it became a habit, you know, that it was hard for me to break at that particular time. To, to my mother's dismay and my father's disappointment, they didn't know where that stuff came from. It sure didn't come from them. It was just the environment, man, you know, environmental circumstances, trying to carve out a niche in this life, you know, trying to be somebody. And they, uh, my mother passed right after I caught that case in 85. She passed in uh, July of 86. My father passed in uh, November of 2014. I had a brother, too. He had, uh, he passed in May of uh, 79 in California and got killed. Is there anything else you'd like people listening to know about? I'm still fighting this fight, man. And, you know, we ain't going to give up. You know, we still got hope. Hope. Special thanks to Nicholas Grevin from IDOC Watch for conducting this interview and to Balagoon for sharing his story. You can find out more details about Balagoon's situation by visiting idocwatch.org. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. 
You can call in on behalf of a loved one, or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can follow Kite Line Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.